Why, hello there. The following episode of The Cantori Show is brought to us by Scripps Poway Eye Care and Optometry. You can check them out online at ScrippsEyeCare.com. And uh, just a couple of weeks ago, went up, got myself some new peepers. I'm pumped because uh, I noticed during uh, long drives or drives up to L.A. to visit my folks, my eyes were getting really tired. I was uh, having a problem with... uh, seeing long distances or in the things are just getting blurry on me and, and then one eye would have to overcompensate and then that eye would get tired and then I'd find myself on my way up to LA almost nodding off like I would have to get coffee because my wife on a couple of occasions would catch me like that bit and it was because my eyes were working so hard so I went up to uh, Scripps Poway got hooked up with some new glasses and I couldn't be more excited, voted top five as far as eye care is concerned. And I certainly encourage you to right off the 15 to check them out. You can even text them. I've got their number somewhere. Hold on a second. Please bear with me. Scripps Poway Eye Care. Here's the phone number. Boom. 858-530-2800. Okay? Very cool. Also want to thank March and Ash, San Diego's premier cannabis dispensary. You can find them online at marchandash.com, legal license, safe access, in-store, as well as curbside pickup and delivery. Again, it's marchandash.com. And also thank you to Baja Bound, Mexican Auto Insurance, bajabound.com. Got a lot of people still heading south of the border, only for essential Essential things like uh, fishing and tequila and tacos. <laughs> I'm kidding. But people are still venturing south for business-related activities, and people own homes down there. And if you need Mexican auto insurance, there's no better on the planet serving San Diego and Baja since the early 90s, BajaBound.com. All right, let's do our show. Hey there. Welcome to the Cantori Show. Great to be with you here. Uh, I'm broadcasting or podcasting out of my uh, 1971 VW bus that uh, doesn't really serve you. It's not like you can see me sitting on the back bench with my little fold-out table and I've got my recorder, the computer, the phone, and my coffee. And my dog circling the bus like a shark wondering what dad's doing in here but uh dad is talking to a childhood friend (laughs) by the name of uh darren strauss who's a best-selling american writer who has uh, i'm reading this right off his wiki earned a number of awards including a guggenheim fellowship national book Critics circle award his uh, book half a life which was released a decade ago, won the 2011 NBCC Award for Memoir, Autobiography. And uh, it's a trip, because I haven't talked to Darren since we were kids, so this is going to be interesting. He's got a new book by the name of Queen of Tuesday, or The Queen of Tuesday, which is the follow-up to Half of Life. And uh, by the way, the NBCC, that's the National Book Critics Circle Award. And uh, this new book mixes fact and fiction, memoir and novel 
to imagine the provocative story of a woman we thought we knew, Lucy, from the I Love Lucy sitcom. Revolutionary show. In fact, uh, I'm a huge I Love Lucy fan. So much so, guess what my daughter's name is? You got it. All right, let's call Darren. Hello? Yo, Darren. Hey, man. What's up? Long time. Like, like a super long time. I was just saying. It's been, I don't think I've talked to you since we were like in sixth grade. <laughs> is, that, is that really possible? It could is be. Is it possible like the last time was like your birthday party for Superman? Oh my gosh. Did I have a Superman birthday party? I think you did. Someone did. And I remember you and I were there. I remember riding BMX bikes with you as they were building out a neighborhood, like a new area behind your house or adjacent to your house. And we we were like taking our bikes there and doing jumps and that whole bit. And then, and then I went back to your house, and I, I saw Three's Company for the first time. <laughs> That's like an epic day. That's like a mythical, yep, important day. And, and you were telling me about Three's Company, and it was the first time I, ha- I think I had ever seen a blonde, like a like a Chrissy Snow. Uh, on Three's Company, and you, and you were like breaking it down for me, and like you knew all about the characters on Three's Company. That is so funny. Yeah, and it's interesting. That was like what, like three weeks ago? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe uh, forty years ago. Oh man, it's crazy to think about, isn't it? It's nuts. Well, really, thank you for having me. This is so cool, man, because uh, I've been obviously following your career and trajectory from afar, and we finally get to talk, and you've got this new book, uh, The Queen of Tuesday, a Lucille Ball story, and I was saying that my uh, my daughter's name is Lucy, and a lot of it has to do with that show and my love for Lucille Ball and wanted to talk not only about the book, but your career, man. Thank you. I had no idea your daughter was named Lucy. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, I've been watching you from afar as well. And, you know, we, we, uh, we've hooked up a couple of times on Facebook, but I do think this is probably the first time over voice. And, you know, I've been in Southern California a couple of times, and I feel like there were some near misses there. You're correct. Yes, you were promoting other books in the past. Because you're – what was your first book that really – it was um, Chang and – Pardon my ignorance yeah, here. It was I called, sh- it was called uh, Chang and Ang. Yeah, that was, Jesus, that was a long time ago now. That was um, around 9-11. And uh, it was my first book, and that was about conjoined twins from Siam. And that's why we call them Siamese twins today, because these guys um, were from Thailand, which was then called Siam. And they were the first famous conjoined twins. And they came over here, and they... Married sisters and had 21 kids and got caught up in the Civil War and tried to break apart and couldn't. And the country was trying to break apart and couldn't. And so I thought, wow, that's a cool book. And so I uh, that was the first time I took a real story and made made a novel out of it. Yeah, and that was the one that really put you on, uh, well, at least on my radar. And probably when you first started doing those aforementioned book tours and found yourself in Southern California. And I remember at the time they were talking about a movie adaptation and like Madonna was involved or am I pulling this stuff out of my ass? (laughs) No, that's so, that's exactly it. I mean, that book has been all over the place. Um, I sold it to Disney and Julie Taymor and then that didn't go. And then I sold it to Gary Oldman and he and I wrote a script together and that was kind of wild. And, uh, 
Wow. And then, yeah, Madonna was – I have a very funny Madonna story, which I probably shouldn't tell, but I will tell. I want to hear so, it. Yeah. I, uh, you know, like all, all guys our age, I was really into Madonna. Of course. Uh, in high school. And not not so much the music, I guess, but, you know, the whole the whole package. Yeah, I had posters, man. I had Madonna <laughs> with, her, with her rubber bracelets and sprawled out and the like a virgin – Come on. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so so I heard, I got this email from someone. It, it wasn't even from her. It was from her makeup person. And it was like, I'm reaching out on behalf of Madonna. I do makeup for her. She's a big fan of your book. Can I meet you? And she wants to give you something. So I was psyched, you know. So I met this woman, and she was Madonna's makeup person. And she gave me this embossed card with Madonna's name on it. And it was like, I'm a big fan, so I, I still have that somewhere. And then she was like, do you want to go to Madonna's concert? And I was like, hell yeah. You know, hell I thought, yeah. you know, I'd go backstage and meet Madonna. This would be great. It's like 2003 or something. So I was really psyched. And, <laughs> and then I get this thing in the mail, like, Madonna's tickets, they're $400. You got to <laughs> send in the check. And I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> so I, and no backstage pass. And That's I was like, amazing. how big a fan could she be? So I, 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 you know, I, I scalped them. That is hilarious. So you get invited to her show. You think you're going to get like the Kevin Costner treatment. And instead <laughs> she's trying to hawk some ticket. Like, Hey, buy, buy some gold circle tickets back then 400 bucks for a ticket. Dang. That's like five grand a ticket today. <laughs> I was pretty disappointed, man. That's hysterical. I thought, you know, I went from like, yeah, backstage Kevin Costner to like, I don't know, upper loge. That's insane. So, uh, so it started with Chang and Eng, and and then I know you did, and I'm honestly pulling this embarrassingly enough, as I mentioned when I first signed on from your wiki. You, you did the real McCoy more more than it hurts you, and, and then yeah. the and then the the book that I was really interested in. And then we'll eventually get to your current. Was your nonfiction release "Half a Life," and uh, because that's a storyline and a narrative that's that I remember very, very well. And can you talk about that a little, please, Darren? Yeah, yeah, that that was a tough one. So I was um, when I was in high school, um, I was driving with some friends to play mini golf. It was like a you know a stereotypical suburban nineteen. 80s uh, uh, day, you know, I was with some friends who were about to play mini golf and we're driving on this little highway, sort of this mini highway with four lanes and up ahead in the distance I saw this bicyclist. As you do when you drive, you sort of clock it, but you don't think too much of it. I was like, okay, that that bicyclist is in the, up, up ahead and I, um, I noticed she sort of like wobbled a little bit, so I moved into the far lane. But I didn't really think about it after that you know and then right as my car approached her she swerved into traffic across two lanes right into my car Oy. and i hit her and she died and uh and it was you know nuts and then i got out of the car and i was in shock i was i still remember i got out of the car and i was like okay someone's broken her arm i'm gonna get in trouble with my dad you know and then I look and she's dead in the street and there was a girl i went to high school with i knew her oh my god and she was like two years younger than I was, and we weren't friends or anything. But you know, I I took a class with her. I, yeah, we grew up in a small town. I gave her a ride in that car like a couple of months before. It was crazy, you know. Um, 
And it was really hard. Um, I felt such guilt. And I went to the funeral, which is the hardest thing I ever did, probably. And uh, her parents there were like, we know it's not your fault, but whatever you do in your life, you have to do it for two people. And, uh, and so you have to be twice as successful. You have to be twice as happy. And I was like, I don't know what that means, but I'll try. Wow, that's and they heavy. Were like, and they were like, but, you know, we know this. We know we'll never blame you. So so I was like, well, at least they don't blame me, you know, so I'll try to do these things they want. And how and that old was really were you important at this time? You were how old, Darren? I was 17. Okay, so I had already moved to Southern California. Yeah, I had been out here for a couple of years at this point. That makes sense. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. I guess I just turned 18. But, yeah, it was senior year of high school. Um, and, but, you know, I was like, okay, that's really hard what they said, but at least they don't blame me. And then I went off to college and as soon as I went to college, I got this note saying, yeah, come home to go to this, this hearing. And I was like, it's just going to be fine. It's just a hearing. I know our parents don't blame me. No one blamed it. The police were, everyone there said it wasn't my fault. I get to the hearing and her parents are suing me for millions of dollars, like more than the insurance would cover. Oh and they're like, God. all of a sudden, like trying to, trying to blame me. And then I found out later that they hid the fact that she was writing about suicide all week. So I didn't know any of that stuff. Um, and so I lived with this terrible guilt, you know, and also fear because, you know, when you're 17, 18 years old and someone's suing you for millions of dollars, <laughs> I didn't have I didn't have anything really so you know I was it was a tough tough couple of years and so the book is about that yeah. thing it's more about it really like you said it resonated with people and I think I, when I was real, writing the book I didn't realize how universal a story it is not just the accident but there's so many things in life that we all feel bad about we feel guilty about, even though we're not guilty of doing something wrong. So yeah. I, I say like you feel guilt, even though you're not culpable. So I felt terrible, even though, you know, I knew intellectually that she swerved into my car and all these eyewitnesses and all the police were like, Oh yeah, it wasn't your fault. But I didn't believe it. You know, I'm like, yeah. I spent, I would go very like at midnight to the library at, at college and, look up reaction times and be like, okay, if you're the fastest, if you're the best driver in the world and you have like 0.6 seconds, can you miss somebody? You know, I just was really putting myself to the ringer. Like I went gray really early. I had stomach issues. Like it was just, it was just feeling and, and not being able to tell anyone because everyone w would be like, oh, you're so lucky. Like, you know, you were, it wasn't your fault. You could have flipped a car. So it, so it was, it was, uh, it was a strange... And, yeah, it's uh, fascinating, Darren, and I, I can't imagine. And I remember my thought process at the time was, wow, that, that happened to Darren? Just It wasn't like you were this reckless kid or it was a situation where I could have envisioned you as a kid coming back from a party all drunk or something. It was, like, it was such a shock having your yeah. name attached to such a tragedy. Now, when it did go to trial... How did that all, or where did that all play out? Well, you know, um, and thanks for saying that stuff. Um, they had this really scummy lawyer who tried to say I was drunk. You know, so that's the interesting thing, right? So what happened was the insurance company said, it's not your fault. So we're just going to offer the family $20,000. Uh, 
And that's what – they have this really gross term. I mean, insurance, I found out insurance companies are disgusting, as if you didn't know. Oh, God. So yeah. they, they were like – they're like, we have this thing called go-away money where we just tell people it's, it wasn't our guy's fault. Here's $20,000. Go away. So they got this offer, and they were going to take it. But then some ambulance-chasing lawyer went over to them and was like, "You could, why would you take 20000 when you can get you know, $5 million, $6 million, whatever it was? So then they sued for that, and then the guy tried to say I was drunk. He tried to say the cop was drunk. Oh my god! You know, or the, and then they tried to say I knew the cop. I mean, it was just nuts. Uh, but it lasted years, right? So it went from like I don't know, eighteen to twenty-six, so or twenty-five. So it was like seven years. And right before trial, I was really panicked. I was like, I don't want to go and stand. You know, I just I told my lawyer. You know, I just don't want to deal with that. So if we could settle, let's settle. And then the insurance company was like, you know what? Screw them. We don't want to settle. And I was like, I don't really feel comfortable saying screw them. They lost their daughter. Even if, you know, even if they're coming after me, it just, it, it was just all very unsavory. Sure. But then right before trial, like an hour before trial, um, their lawyer went to them. So the, the the parents' lawyer went to the parents and was like, you know what, you don't have any case. Take the twenty thousand. So he was just stringing them along for seven years. Damn. And that's disgusting. They could have invested that money, but no. They so not only did they only get twenty thousand dollars, they had to give thirty percent of that to this scumbag. That's gross. Yeah, it cost them. Yeah, and it cost me. I mean, it was seven years of terrible stress. You know. Like if you're 17 years old, 18 years old, and you have seven years where there's thing hanging over your head, where can't it's imagine. Like, Those are I real was like, adult you know, Whatever problems. I make, yeah, I was like, whatever I make, I will have to, I will owe. Yeah, I, did, I didn't even have a job, but I was like, when I do get a job, I will owe these people everything for years and years and years, you know. And it seems like such a trite question to ask here, but why did you eventually write the book? Like, what really? I can't believe I'm asking. What inspired you to write the book? <laughs> well, you know, it's really interesting. So it was, so, I buried it so deep. I didn't tell anybody. So that's the other thing in the book is about living a secret life. So I like, this happened, as I said, at the end of high school. And I went off to college. I didn't tell anyone in college. And I moved to New York City. I didn't tell any of my friends there. I just had this secret. And then I started to become a writer. And when I was a writer, I went to graduate school with a bunch of other writers. And they were all writing autobiographical stuff mm. and and they were like you should write autobiographical stuff yourself like that's that's what's selling right now and i was like oh no no i've got no stories in my life like i'm gonna i'm gonna write about conjoined twins from thailand like i i was like <laughs> i'm gonna get as far away from my shit as possible you know interesting and then i realized i, was, I guess it was when i turned 36 so i was like Half my the, the the book is called Half a Life, like you said, and so I was like, oh man, it's just half my life ago this happened. So I was, lived 18 years with this, and and so I was like, I should maybe examine this. I buried it so deep, and I was thinking like Half a Life, like I was living Half a Life because I was supposed to live for two people. So I just started to like write stuff down, and the way as writer, the way I deal with things, I just sort of write them. I wasn't even planning on publishing it at first. I started writing stuff, and then I was like, you know what? I think if this book was out there when I was a kid and I was going through this, it would have helped me a lot. So I just started to write it 
thinking it would just help people who have been in accidents. But I think, like I said, the reason it struck such a chord is because so many people have things they feel bad about, even if they don't know what they could have done differently. Right. So I actually wanted to, I got so many emails about this book, thousands of emails. I wanted to publish a book just of the emails, but I couldn't do it because the rights was so hard, you know, but people were sending these incredible stories of just crazy things that they had felt bad about. That wasn't their fault. Like this one woman wrote me saying her, her brother, she was a twin and her brother, uh, was born with brain damage because the doctor messed up the, uh, the delivery and she felt guilt about that her whole life. I mean, she was a baby, right? Nothing. And someone else was like, I, I've never told anyone this, but I laughed at my father's funeral when I was eight and I felt terrible about it until I wrote this email and I realized, Oh, it's not as bad as I thought. Cause I think when you bury things, they just take on this weight. Yep. So it felt really bad for this woman until she wrote it down and she was like, Oh, it's not as big a deal as I thought. So, that was the sort of impetus for the book, just telling the story. And people really did, luckily for me, respond to it. And boy, did they respond. I mean, this the book ended up in GQ. I remember you were on This American Life. I, I saw UK publications. I mean, it went, my favorite author, Nick Hornby, actually referenced it and uh, paid it accolades. I, it was a veritable success there. I mean, it was, it was, it's that was yeah. next I level. Say it was really sweet to get that Nick Hornby thing. I got, I didn't know him at all. And he, he wrote about how much he liked it. And that was, yeah, it meant a lot. Yeah. So, it, and it actually read, now I'm trying, we're, we're, we're making a movie of it, hopefully. So that is going to happen. You know, you never they know. Always, yeah. You never know, but there, there's a great, uh, director, uh, writer named Josh Wakeley who I'm working with. And, uh, so we'll see, you know, it's, it's scary because I think probably always would be scary to, have your book made into a movie, but when it's your your story, life, and your family, and yeah, yeah. Now tell me though, since it came, it's been ten years since its release. Did you did you find that it had a, a way of healing you on the back end? Like, have the last ten years been different than the uh, previous eighteen? Yeah, I think that's a that's a good question. Um, you know, I. Um, I think there's no such thing as closure, so I don't really believe like, oh, you write this thing or you I say agree this with thing that. and everything closes, but it definitely made it easier to deal with. So I don't think about it as much. And when I do think about it, it's easier because, <clears throat> like I said, you know, I think sometimes you just just saying things out loud helps you. Yeah. So there's a there's a therapy called complicated grief disorder therapy, which I read about, where they tell you just to say what makes you sad into a tape recorder or a, or your phone or something and record it every day for two months and then never t- and then never listen to that tape again. And I think it's just like getting it out there, you know? Wow, and so that's heavy. with this book, yeah, right? And so with this book, I would, you know, I would not just write the book, but I did a bunch of readings. And so I realized it's kind of like AA, you know? Like I would get up in front of a group of strangers or talk about this painful thing it would feel like shit. Yep. And then I would, and then I'd feel better afterward. And I did it, you know, tons of times. That's amazing. So I do recommend, I do recommend to anyone listening, if you have something hard, just write it down. Even, even if you don't show it to anyone, just to, just to like put your thoughts down on paper, it makes you sort of have control over the material. And then even just like deciding what sentence comes first, what comes second. You're so right. That, that sort of gives you power over it. 
Yeah, it's worked for me. Yeah. Tell me about uh, the Queen of Tuesday. Now, this is your follow-up to Half a Life, which we just got done discussing, and it's been quite some time between the publications. So tell us about this one and how this one came about. Well, this is like a totally different um, tone. This is a fun a fun book, I think. It's um like you said earlier in the in the show, it's about Lucille Ball. So it's it's kind of a weird one. I you know, like I like you said, I've written a bunch of books and so I wanted to try to figure out like what how could I get them all together in one? Like what how could I do everything I've learned? So my first books, like you mentioned, was historical fiction and then I did this memoir, which is, you know, about my life and so I was like, I'm gonna try to just make a a new kind of book that just does all this stuff. So it's the story of Lucille Ball and it's like a biography of her sort of, and it's the story of my grandfather and he's named, it's his life story. And then it's their passionate sexual affair, which I invented. So it's like a, it's like a, lo- a love story between my grandfather and Lucille Ball. Cause they That's met incredible. at a party. Well, they met at a party once thrown by Donald Trump's father. And so I was like, I got to write about that. So Trump's okay, dad, so that's true. That part's that's, true? Yeah. Okay. I mean, it, it's not proven that they met sure. there, but they so, – so in way back around the time of I Love Lucy, a little bit after, but I moved the date a little bit, Trump's father threw this party in Coney Island because he bought he bought Coney Island and he wanted to tear down this beautiful glass and steel um, cathedral, which was the first – amusement park in American history. It's this historic, beautiful, awesome building. And he was going to tear it down to make shitty housing. Right. And so he knew, cause you know, Trump's are even his dad, they're good at manipulating the press. He knew, okay, this is going to be controversial. So in order to beat the controversy, he threw a party with a bunch of celebrities where at midnight, the stroke of midnight, everyone threw bricks through the glass. Oh, and the, geez. and, the, and the, the photographers took photos. And so that's a party where my grandfather, who, had, who was in real estate um, and lost all his money, but that's a different story. But before he lost <laughs> all his money, he knew he knew Trump's dad. And so he was there. So he's at Fred's Luc- party. And, he was at Fred's party. And, and Lucille's Lucille. balls there. And there's your grandfather, a realtor. And that's that sets the stage. That sets the stage. That's the opening. And then my grandfather left my grandmother, and she was a drunk, um, and no one knew what, what got her start to start drinking. And so I just started to sort of spin the story out from there, like why did my grandfather leave her? What you know? So, so yeah, it's it's a novel with with memoir and and nonfiction. I love stuff that. mixed in. How it's a hybrid. It's 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 a hybrid. That's tremendous. Yeah. The reviews have been good. They they started to come in. So yeah, I saw Knock the piece. Wood. I saw the piece in the uh, Los Angeles Times. That's what inspired me to reach out to you because I was like, here he goes again, Darren, <laughs> from Thanks, Half man. a Life to this and before that, the Chang and. I just, I was like, he's he just another hit on his hands. Now, what's with the fascination with Lucille Ball? I'm curious. Well, that's the weird thing. I had this dream, and I wrote down the dream, and I was like, okay, this is my next book. I woke up, and I was like, what the fuck does that say? <laughs> it, was just, it was just Lucille Ball, and I was like, why did I write that down? And it was like, Lucille Ball and, and, and Papa, I was just thinking, I was like, what the, what the hell is that? So I started doing research into Lucille Ball, and then I realized she was so awesome in ways I didn't even know. 
Right. I mean, everyone knows how popular she was, right? I actually learned that she was so popular that when her show would cut to commercial, the reservoirs in all the big cities would drop because the whole country went to the bathroom at once. Oh, my gosh. That's fascinating. So there's that. But then what I didn't realize is, like, she was kind of this feminist icon in right? a way that we don't even realize. Like, she she was the first female mogul. Like, she, she was the reason we have Star Trek because she, her production company was the only one that took a chance on it. I didn't even and know she that. Was, yeah. And she was – if you think about it, she had, like, the first famous interracial marriage on American TV. Like, she did all this cool stuff that we don't even think about. So I was like, that woman is awesome. I'm just going to write this book. And it was just, it was really fun. And why not pair her with the most important or one of the most important people in your life, your grandfather? Yeah, exactly. That's awesome, man. Yeah, thank you. So, yeah, so it's uh, Queen of Tuesday. It's out um, the 18th. And, uh, I, you know, I was going to be coming to L.A. Uh, uh, and San Diego, actually. My wife is from San Diego. No way. But that is not, that's not going to happen now. Your wife's from San Diego? COVID. She's from San Diego, yeah. Tell me more. I got to hear about this. I had no idea. She went to, um, I'm trying to remember what the name of high school was, um, El Cajon. I'm not sure what the, na- what the name of the school was, but okay. yeah, so I've, so but I've been there. Up? That's amazing. She grew up there. Yeah, I love, it's beautiful there. So I was psyched, you know, I was going to get to go back, little book tour and everything, but um, COVID took care of that, so yeah, I, w- I will be, I'll be home. Everybody in your family safe as far as that's concerned, speaking of? I had I actually was diagnosed with it, but it was a mild case, so I'm I'm feeling pretty good. How about you? I'm doing all right. I just had a test done because I've been having these weird aforementioned stomach issues. So I'm like, is this a weird gastrointestinal like COVID thing going on? So just to play it safe, because my parents are older and I see them every every so often, I went and got tested, it came up negative, but Hearing that you're positive, you're like you're like number 13, 14 of positive cases I've heard, and thankfully the majority of them have been uh, mild cases. So you're in that category. I'm happy to hear that. Yes, but the interesting thing is it started with my stomach. So and and you know those uh, those tests are so spotty. You should maybe think about doing it again. I did get two. As a matter of okay. fact, I got okay. I got two within the same week just because my mother was just insisting the Italian mom bit and just not trusting anything. So I actually got tested twice. And how long did it last for you? Was it just uh, a minor, minor case or what was your situation like? I had it for like uh, four or five days and then it sort of got better and I thought, OK, that's good. But then every three weeks it would sort of come back. Hey. But that was just for like first two, three months. And now now it hasn't come back, knock on wood. Did it ever present any respiratory issues or anything? Or was it always just weird? It was, so it was stomach at first. And then, and then it was slight respiratory, like my lungs kind of hurt. And then I was sort of fatigued. I had a slight fever. So, Man, hearing this, I really am glad I got tested. And if I show any other symptoms, I'm going to go back and get tested again. But they do say, I mean, I guess no one, like you said, no one knows, but my doctor told me that if it presents in the stomach, generally that's pretty mild. Yes. So I don't know. Okay. Well, I'll take that any day. But uh, yeah. otherwise, Darren, it's been uh, it's been so cool talking to you. And I'm so, I don't know, just as somebody who I've known you since we were kids, I'm really proud of you for what it's worth. Oh, thanks, man. And I'm proud of you, too. I think, you know, it's awesome. I'm really, I'm really 
psyched that you're that you're kind enough to have me on the show and and everything that's been going on with you yeah it's been a crazy ride man you know being a creative and trying to support a family and uh ride this wave it's been a crazy crazy ride and sometimes the waters get rough but i can't imagine doing anything else it's it's i'm very thankful and grateful for what i have and what i've had so life is good that's the way i feel like you know it, it it's everything's tough but you know you gotta count your blessings bingo Right on, my man. Well, continued success, and I certainly encourage people to pick up The Queen of Tuesday, a Lucille Ball story written by Mr. Darren Strauss. Thank you, Chris. Very good talking to you. Uh, My pleasure. The Cantori Show. Cantori Show.